I don't think there was ever a point Democratic leaders felt sure about the 1952 presidential election. Adlai Stevenson was well known to be a wit, but in terms of likability, much like the catch he had, everybody seemed to like Ike, at least in so-called certain circles in Washington, D.C., but Eisenhower's own campaign was full of its own issues. Nixon, though lauded for his aggression in actively prosecuting Soviet spies, had stepped in it when accusations of inappropriate use of campaign funds poured in. Nixon had given a speech that had, for the most part, indicated that he had done nothing wrong and it seemed to work, at least for him. Eisenhower was left in a predicament that had two options. He could part ways with Nixon and lose the support from those who backed the California senator or suck it up and run with him. He chose the latter, but in the process, he made sure that Nixon knew who was in charge of the ticket and that he, at the end of the day, chose who his running mate was. After this, Ike's and Nixon's relationship became frosty, according to many sources. But it wouldn't be the only Republican relationship that would hurt Ike's brand. Senator Joseph McCarthy was running a campaign of fear. A real American witch hunt. Blacklisting Hollywood actors and producers. The junior senator from Wisconsin had been front-page news for years. And in many ways, the sensational headlines played a part in his popularity. With many in the media too scared to speak out. He claimed that communist spies had infiltrated the State Department and other parts of the federal government. And as time went on, McCarthy became more and more paranoid and desperate in his accusations. Those who knew Ike said he despised McCarthy, but Washington politics has always been about staying quiet and one should be speaking out. And Ike is quickly learning that his military training may have prepared him for war, but nothing could have prepared him for politics. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Dwight D. Eisenhower, Episode 6. While campaigning for Adelaide Stevenson, President Harry Truman, who worked alongside Eisenhower for years, told a crowd once that there had been a time he had thought Eisenhower would be a good president, but I was wrong, Truman spoke. Dwight ignored Truman for the most part, speaking passionately against communism and going to Korea while trying to disconnect from spicier rhetoric in the GOP. The GOP didn't fare as well in other races, but Eisenhower made it to the White House where he figured he had enough in him for at least one term. On the day of his inauguration, Truman and Eisenhower rode together in a convertible where they both plastered smiles, patted each other on the back, and waved at the cameras and crowds. The two who had once gotten along fine were strained. The smiles more grimaces than genuine. But the pair put on a show for the American people. If anything, Truman had been more upset that Eisenhower would not run as a member of the Democratic Party than anything else. During the long, silent ride, Eisenhower turned to Truman and said, I did not intend your inauguration in 1948 because I didn't want to draw attention away from you. After a beat, Truman clapped back, Ike, 
I didn't invite you. The tone of the conversation would be something Ike would say he didn't remember later on or he would later deny happening at all. But it is worth noting that Truman did request that John Eisenhower, stationed in Korea, be returned to D.C. for his father's inauguration. Their paths would occasionally cross in the future, but Eisenhower and Truman would remain at an icy detente for the rest of their lives. And it would not be the only cold detente in the president's future. Eisenhower went into the presidency with the vision of revitalizing and shaking up structures within the White House and the federal government. He had the military experience, and from the get-go, he organized a small personal staff and a larger one that was reminiscent more of a chain of command than anything else. Ike worked to cut out a lot of the red tape and reduce memos to one lines with initials instead of a full signature. Eisenhower often encouraged debates among his cabinet, and the president was known for sitting silently in the room, rarely speaking until departments had reached a compromise without having to get involved. Though Ike had opinion ratings that were pretty high in the polls, it's often said that Ike didn't like to consult them at all. When it came to American politics at home, Ike was often so middle of the road that often he had to be encouraged by the Republicans to do something. And that was something that upset politicians on both sides of the aisle. At the end of the Korean War, the American public hit a mild recession, and the GOP urged him to act quickly so that a bad name wouldn't be given to Eisenhower as it had been to Hoover. So they brought in economists to work alongside the panel. But one name kept popping up repeatedly. Eisenhower had been determined to ignore him, but it wasn't going to work. McCarthy was starting to wear thin on a nation's nerves as he continually went to take down those in power by simply making an accusation of communism. He was destroying livelihoods, and at first it seemed a lot of conservative Americans loved the Wisconsin senator. Initially, it was Eisenhower who blamed the media for giving McCarthy attention in the first place. But it soon became clear that if and when the media spoke out about McCarthy, he fought back brutally. For two years, McCarthy had accused many high-powered people of being communist spies, including some in the State Department. His rantings never once led to a conviction of treason, but they led to many lives being broken apart. One could argue that Ike should have done more. I th think he could have, but... It's hard to say when he campaigned with a man he was said to have loathed. Ignoring Joseph McCarthy wasn't going to work, and it appeared neither was trying to play a quiet game of censure. Truman had frequently spoken out against the man to little or no avail. Ike was smart enough to know the work would have to happen quietly. When asked about the senator, Ike usually would retort that he wouldn't talk personalities. Among colleagues and cabinet members, however, Eisenhower would cite McCarthy as the frightening fringe of the Republican Party. And though many thought Eisenhower's silence was complicit, he was actively working on a downfall for the man. It was triggered by McCarthy coming for George C. Marshall and Ike, who had remained silent, began actively plotting the downfall of the man who came for his mentor and friend. It was in 1954 that Eisenhower and his aides began working on a report regarding special army privileges given to McCarthy. 
Reports of McCarthy meddling in the army had caused something to snap in Eisenhower. That was his army. And while Eisenhower's aides worked on this report, when Ralph Flanders, a Republican senator from Vermont, was asked to which party McCarthy belonged, trying to get the Republicans to take ownership of the loose cannon, Flanders stunned everyone when he said, one must conclude that his is a one-man party and that its name is McCarthyism. In the meantime, Eisenhower had begun working more actively on the takedown. He began urging Republican Senate leaders to promise to try to control McCarthy. McCarthy had actively been going after U.S. Army dentist Irving Perez. Dr. Perez had been commissioned an officer in 1952 and signed an oath affirming that he had never been a member of an organization that sought to overthrow the government by unconstitutional means. But then he invoked his Fifth Amendment right to protection and incrimination when he was asked if he had ever been a member of the Communist Party or any affiliated body. That got him put under Army surveillance, but he was promoted nevertheless from captain to major in October 1953, and that was enough to set off McCarthy, spewing accusations of an Army scheme to promote communism. Meanwhile, the pressure was not only coming from the Democrats, but journalist Edward R. Murrow presenting his now famous broadcast against McCarthy. It was the accusation of the army that really did McCarthy in. And that's when the army turned loose on McCarthy, a soft-spoken man named Joseph Welch. The appearance was deceiving. As it turned out, Welch was ready to play tennis, and he spat back a retort to every question McCarthy lobbed at him, ending with the coup de grace that took all the steam out of McCarthy. We not drop this, but we know he belongs to the lawyers' guild. And Mr. Cole nods his head at me. I did you, I think, no personal injury, Mr. Cole. No, sir. I meant to do you no personal injury. And if I did, I beg your pardon. Let us not assassinate this lad further, Senator. You've done enough. Have you no sense of decency, sir, at long last? There were a few more words exchanged and then loud applause. Truly, McCarthy was defeated. At this point, his own party wanted nothing to do with him. Within a week, the hearings into the army would be closed. And as the GOP tried to move on, McCarthy would sink deep into alcoholism for the rest of his next two and a half years of his life. He would die in office in 1957. And for the rest of his time, one of Eisenhower's favorite jokes was reportedly, it's not McCarthyism, it's McCarthy-wasm. But McCarthy's ghost, or at least the ghost of those hearings, would linger far after being scolded and shamed. He was kept out of the U.S.'s Oppenheimer hearings, possibly for good reason, but many wondered if this was due to the political discourse that had been brought on by McCarthy. Or did Robert Oppenheimer actually have connections with enemies of the United States while he was working on the Manhattan Project? He had worked tirelessly on that, and his contributions had helped succeed But Oppenheimer had known ties to communist organizations, and it was in 1943 that over dinner, one of his colleagues, a French literature professor named Hacken Chevalier, told Oppenheimer that he had a friend to whom he could transfer information to the Soviet Union. It would be safer and better for the world, Chevalier claimed, for the Soviet Union to also have these types of weapons. Oppenheimer rejected the offer. 
He also brought that information forward when it happened, but nevertheless, he ended up in a hearing. Problems plagued the trial, including issues with the defense team's security clearance making it impossible to access information. Oppenheimer testified for 27 hours grilled on the stand. The Cold War was heating up, so previous connections to communist organizations seemed increasingly more relevant. In some cases, the connection was just newspaper subscriptions. At the end of the Oppenheimer hearing, he would lose his security clearance. Later on, his daughter, Tony, would try to apply to work for the United Nations in the 1970s, but due to her father, she couldn't pass the security clearance. His legacy forever tainted. Tony would later die by suicide. Eisenhower had conflicting feelings about Oppenheimer, and he would have remorse, asking himself repeatedly how much did McCarthy's unchecked rhetoric contribute to what happened. But for the time being, he had to focus on working with the Soviets for nuclear peace, although attempts to communicate with one another were frequently ignored. Eisenhower was worried not only about the Soviet Union's potential to utilize that type of weaponry, but he also feared the impact of the Soviet Union's isolationism. A Cold War looks different. It's quiet. It doesn't require boots on the ground or tanks or guns or airplanes. Instead, it requires intelligence and covert operation. Instead of troops on the ground came a more terrifying theme of mutually assured destruction. Eisenhower had to imply that they had enough nuclear arms to retaliate immediately. It's Theodore Roosevelt speak softly and carry a big stick on steroids. And thus, the American occupation with fallout shelters and big bombs would begin scaring a generation of boomer children who were supposed to believe that hiding under a desk could protect you from nuclear bombs. As school children learned to duck and cover, Eisenhower was also monitoring heightened tensions in Vietnam. It's at one point... During a meeting, Robert Cutler, one of the president's advisors, brought Eisenhower some documents that suggested they used nuclear power in Vietnam. Nuclear firepower in Vietnam. Eisenhower was said to go off, shouting loudly, You boys must be crazy. We can't use those awful things against the Asians for the second time in less than 10 years. My God. France lost their war. And suddenly, Vietnam was divided, and Eisenhower somehow fooled himself into thinking he could ignore it. Maybe the French could regain their control, but Vietnam was out of control, and he didn't want American intervention there, given how badly the Korean War had been for American soldiers. The end result was a group of people who would forever laud Eisenhower for keeping them out of Vietnam, which... It was really an end result of multiple issues, including Eisenhower's own hopes that the situation would resolve itself, which we know it wouldn't. But his level head was always noted, and any time something catastrophic seemed close, Eisenhower seemed to just keep both the Soviets and others at a level head. Even if Vietnam would implode after his departure from office, he was noted for hitting most issues head-on. If Eisenhower did take one thing from his early days with him to office, it was the memory of transporting a troop of tanks across the country. The 1919 Transcontinental Motor Convoy had taken 62 days, and it ended with lots of pushing and dragging out of the mud. 
It was a mess. But the one thing that the exercise had done was show Eisenhower a flaw in the nation's roadways. They were impassable in most cases and showed that even if there were a need to mobilize a military cross-country, it would take way too much time. And even though the talk of an interstate system had existed before Eisenhower, he was the catalyst for it. The Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956 was a culmination of this, and though it's frequently thought of as related to defense either for the evacuations of persons if there was a nuclear incident or to create a convoy for tanks or other military vehicles, the interstate system in America is for civilians, primarily. It was the largest public works on a scale that had not been seen since Roosevelt's New Deal. For help selling the idea, Eisenhower charged Nixon with giving a speech at a governor's conference to electrify states with the possibility of an interstate highway system that would lead to more commerce, more money, and to push them for the money to make the big move. For whatever frostiness remained between Ike and Nixon, he knew the man could fire up a room with a speech. The nation became excited, and by 1955, the bill was rapidly working its way through Congress. The Republicans were already looking for Eisenhower to run for a second term, but he was slowing down, and he certainly had no intention of running again. The president had been daring to open up American and Soviet airspace to one another at a tepid attempt to keep connection with a country that was isolating itself to everyone else around it. The idea that it would be harder to launch a sneak attack if air travel was pretty well documented. The Geneva Summit provided a family trip with Mamie and John, as well as the opportunity to meet one of his old friends from the Soviet Union, Georgi Zhukov. The pipeline of information had closed so tightly on information about Zhukov that, for a moment, Eisenhower thought he had been killed by Stalin. It could have happened. But between the pair, Zhukov confirmed that Life in the Soviet Union was hard, and he seemed sad and not really responsive to Ike's warmth in front of his colleagues. Not one to read the room, Eisenhower was noted to loudly tell Russians about their nuclear stockpile and encourage them to help find a way to avoid war. It was said everyone often nodded in agreement with Eisenhower. And throughout the summit, Ike said he had hoped that the airspaces would be open and that both countries would have blueprints and aerial photos of the other's armaments. Oh, it was a hit amongst everyone except Nikita Khrushchev. And that's when Eisenhower noted Nikita Khrushchev was the one in charge, the one that all his other old friends were scared of. The U.S. and Nikita Khrushchev would be no strangers to one another for quite some time. On one warm day in September, Eisenhower had been stressed most of the day, aggravated. He recalled that he'd had bacon and eggs for breakfast, he had had a hamburger with onions for lunch, and he recalled getting angry when he was accidentally called twice from the phone during his golf game. He played poorly and his stomach was upset. At 10 p.m. that evening, Eisenhower went to sleep, only to wake up a few hours later. At 1.30 a.m., his arm was aching angrily. He had tried to quietly find some aspirin or milk of magnesia, but it only took the sound of his voice for Mamie to leap to her feet to call the doctor. It didn't take long to diagnose what was happening. His doctor arrived immediately. The President of the United States was having a heart attack. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast where we look into the lives of people who, you know, were God's favorites or at least thought they were. Again, (coughs) Richard Nixon. 
Thanks to everybody who donates to our Patreon. You've helped me buy some awesome sources for this episode, including Stephen Ambrose's Ike Spies and Stephen Ambrose's other book, Eisenhower, Soldier, and President. Other sources for today's episode include History.com, the inaugural address given by Eisenhower at the Geneva Summit. If you want to hear the whole thing, you'll want to look up Open Sky Speech 1955. The Department of Transportation's website on the interstate plan. And a special thank you to whoever sent me the book of Kay Summersby, uh, My Love Affair with Dwight Eisenhower. Boy, that was, we didn't use it in the episode, but that was a good read for the airplane. Woo! If you want to donate to our Patreon, you can look us up over there at God's Favorites. We use that money not only for books and resources to make sure that we're giving kudos to all whose sources we use and to make sure that they're getting money for that. We also use it for things like music licensing and for streaming cost. It's pricier than you would think. You can also join us on God's Favorites, a history podcast over at Facebook or on my TikTok, Melissa Fairlady. And thanks to everybody who joined in on my fun trip to London. That was a great time. Too bad it happened two weeks before the Queen passed away. Jeez Louise. Rest in peace, Your Majesty. And we'll see you next time, friends.